I hope that you will take your Bibles and open with me to Mark chapter 8. We continue our walk through this great gospel. Mark chapter 8. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Lyrics written by John Newton almost 250 years ago. Arguably some of the most well-known song lyrics of all time. Newton originally wrote the hymn in Great Britain in 1773. Within the next decade, it was already being added to hymn books in Britain. By the early 1800s, it was being sung in America amid the Second Great Awakening. In the 200 years since, it's been recorded countless times in, I think, about every genre of music. Continues to be sung today in churches and among Christians worldwide. There are lyrics we know, and for those of us who know Christ, they convey a significant truth about our reality. That first verse of the hymn reminds us of who we were, called wretched, wretched sinners. Those who were lost, but who have been found. Those who were blind, but who have been given sight. Something changed. Someone changed us. Someone took us from being lost to being found, from being blind to having sight. It's the amazing grace of God that we've sung about and that we stand in daily. And I'm thankful for the imagery of the song. It's helpful. Aren't you glad that God gave us the gift of imagery? That we can understand things by imagining things? The song uses imagery of being lost and found, of being blind and seeing. And this imagery is not new or original with John Newton. He takes the imagery from the scriptures. He uses the imagery of Christ. Jesus is the one who said, I've come to find my lost sheep, to call them to myself. He's the one who came and he read of the, from the scroll in the, in the temple or in the synagogue and said, I've come to give sight to the blind. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. And that's what we're going to consider this morning as we turn to Mark chapter 8. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that our focus last week was on the unbelief of the disciples. Jesus has these 12 men, his closest followers, and they have seen it all. They saw more miracles, heard more teaching, had more access to Jesus than anyone else. Yet, for all they had seen and heard, Mark has showed us time and time again that the disciples continue to have a really hard time believing. They don't clearly see who Jesus is and they don't fully understand why he has come. So again, last week, we had their unbelief front and center and we listened as Jesus warned them and rebuked them. Maybe you remember the warning. It came out of the interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees in verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees had come, these religious leaders, they come to Jesus demanding a sign. Give us a sign, show us who you are, but they don't come honestly. And Jesus knows that. He's performed many miracles. They're asking for something more. Give us a sign from God. 
Jesus rebukes them, you will not be given a sign. But then he gets on a boat with his disciples, and as they're sailing, he, he takes that interaction with the Pharisees, and he brings it into a conversation with his disciples, and he warns them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's he talking about? He's talking about their unbelief. He's talking about their blindness. This is a label that Jesus had given to the Pharisees. We could look back at Matthew chapter 23, starting verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, you blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. Jesus points out the blindness, the unbelief of the Pharisees. And then he goes to his disciples and he warns them, beware of that blindness. Beware of that unbelief. But you'll remember from last week that he warns them, but the disciples don't hear the warning. He speaks of leaven and they start thinking of bread. What about our next meal? We don't have enough to eat. And it's at this point that Jesus rebukes them very clearly. We get that series of questions starting in verse 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember? I fed 5,000. How many baskets did you pick up? Answer 12. He said, I fed the 4,000. How many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? He wants them to see him fully and to trust him. He's reminding them to go back to the metaphor of their inability to see fully. There's a sense in which they're still partially blind. Having eyes, do you not see? That's where we were last week. The blindness of the Pharisees and the partial blindness of the disciples. And it's on the hills of that account that Mark records a miracle that's all about Christ's ability to give sight. And I don't think it's an accident or that it's insignificant that these are back to back. First, Jesus rebukes the disciples for not seeing and then he heals a blind man. This is the next thing that Jesus does. This is the next thing that the disciples see. And this is the next thing that the Spirit inspires for us to have in the Scriptures. A warning against not seeing. And then a demonstration that Jesus gives sight to the blind. So we're going to consider chapter 8, verses 22 to 6, 26. After covering 21 verses last week, Dealing with four seems like we should be done in no time, right? We'll see. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and he begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? 
He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And the man opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I that God will add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Before we jump into the story this morning, I want to take just a small step back. I want to take a minute to consider how we read and interpret the Bible, and in particular, how we should read and interpret the miracles of Jesus. Hope this will be helpful to you. Something I've been forced to think about quite a bit as we've worked our way through the Gospel of Mark. I've had to answer these questions again for myself. How should we interact with the miracles of Jesus? What does God want us to learn from the miracles? A related question. Are all the miracles intended to teach us the same thing? Do they all serve the same purpose? Or does each miracle serve a different purpose? I wonder if you've ever thought about it. I think there's something to be said for the fact that all the miracles of Jesus do have one common purpose. They're all meant to reveal Jesus to us, to show us who he is. So I think of John chapter 20, near the end of that gospel. John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What does John say? There's many signs, many miracles that aren't written. The ones that are written are written for this purpose, so that you'll believe that he's Christ, that he's the Son of God. And not only that, but that you will trust him. That by believing you may have life in his name. So John's telling us that the miracles are intended to show us the deity of Jesus, that he is God, and that we should believe. You can go to any miracle and read it, and this is a, a good and appropriate and necessary takeaway. This miracle shows us that Jesus is God, and we should trust him. I think there's also some other things that we see in almost all the miracles. And as we've gone through the miracles, we've probably made this application from each one of them. Closely related to his deity is his power. The miracles of Jesus show us his power. Jesus had the power to give a lame man the ability to walk. You can't do that, right? Jesus did it. He has the power to heal a man of leprosy in a moment. He has the power to speak and the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples said, what kind of man is this? He had the power to raise a girl from the dead. The power to open the ears of the deaf. And these are just a few of the miracles we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. We can list others. And each of them give us a reminder of the power of Jesus. We are often tempted to believe that there are things in our life that God cannot control. And I want to submit to you the miracles of Christ and remind you he can do whatever he pleases.
Another thing I think we see in all the miracles of Jesus is his compassion. We've seen this and we've discussed it together as we've worked through the gospel. Over and over, we see how Jesus deals with people with patience and gentleness. He's compassionate towards those who are hurting. Again, think back to the leper, a man who was in a dire situation who no one else would go near. But Jesus touched him, showed compassion on him. Go back to Jairus, the ruler who came to Jesus because his daughter was dying. And once again, Jesus shows compassion, raising her from the dead. Just last week, he looked out over the crowd of 4,000 people who had gathered. And Mark in chapter 8 tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were hungry. I think very specifically talking about their physical need. Jesus shows compassion and he feeds them. Jesus was never under any obligation to heal anyone. Jesus was never under any obligation to feed anyone. But regularly we see him going out of his way to be compassionate. I will remind you, church, and I will submit to you, if you question the compassion of Christ, look to his miracles. See how he deals gently and patiently with people who do not deserve it. These are some of the common things we see in all of his miracles. And so the question I, I'm, I'm asking myself is, do we go to all these miracles and see these big, important applications? And is this what we're supposed to see in all the miracles? And I'd say, to it, yes. But I don't think that's all we're meant to see. I think what we recognize as we work through the Gospels is that Jesus performs particular miracles at particular times to teach particular things. I think we see an example of that in our passage this morning. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Jesus performs this miracle at this time or that Mark records it the way he does in this context inspired by the Spirit. It's not an accident that right after we see the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and the partial blindness of the disciples that Jesus performs a miracle revealing that he is the one who has the power to open blind eyes. He's giving his disciples a real-life illustration of why he came. And the Spirit records it. So we, reading the Scriptures now 2,000 years later, can recognize what Jesus can do. So as we go through the passage, I'll encourage you to consider these two things. That we are all born blind and unable to see the beauty of Jesus. Unable to see our need for him. Unable to see him as the one who's all sufficient. And secondly, that Jesus is the one who has the power to give sight. At this point, the disciples are struggling to see clearly. They've been with Jesus. They've understood to a certain extent but now Jesus does this miracle in part to help them recognize their need. So with that said, let's consider the story. We come to verse 22 and we see a, another change in location. If you've been with us, we've been all over the map recently. The disciples and Jesus sailing from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. This time they head to Bethsaida, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Just to the east of the border of the nation of Israel. 
as they arrived there, Mark tells us in verse 22 that some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. We've seen lots of miracles up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is the first time we've seen explicitly the healing of a blind man. We've had times when Jesus, is, we're told he heals many, but this is the first time blindness is mentioned. We're going to see it one more time at the end of chapter 10, twice in the Gospel of Mark. Again, we see that there are people who bring a person who's in need to Jesus. Just like the group of friends that brought the lame man in chapter 2 to Christ. Or the people who brought the deaf man to Jesus in chapter 7. Now we see another group of people bringing a person in need to Christ. Let's just stop here and mention and consider this. Jesus is the one with the power to give sight. He's the one with the power to open blind eyes. You don't have that power. People must be brought to Jesus. You can't open the eyes of the heart of your children. Nor can you make your coworker see Jesus as the one they need. But what we can do is continually bring people face to face with who Jesus is. In fact, we've been commanded to do this. To help them understand their need for him to tell them of what he did to save them. We can't make people see the truth, but we should use whatever means we have to bring them to Jesus. We should be faithful to pray, asking God to open the eyes of their hearts, trusting that he is able. In this account, we see these people bring this man to Jesus and they beg. We sense their belief, maybe not in Jesus as Messiah, but a belief in his power to heal. They come and they beg him to heal this man of his blindness. As we read the story, I want you to notice something that's both unusual and something that's familiar. Explain. Most of the time, when Jesus heals people, he heals them wherever they are. They come to him and he heals them. Or he goes to where they are and he heals them. But we read in verse 23 that he takes the blind man and he leads him out of the village. He could have healed him right there where he was, but instead he takes him away from the crowds. It's unusual compared to most of the miracles we see, but I said it's familiar, and that's because this is the same thing we saw back in chapter 7 when Jesus healed the deaf man. If you look back at chapter 7, starting in verse 32, notice the similarities between these two miracles. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Several similarities. In both stories, these men are brought to Jesus. In both cases, the people beg Jesus to touch the person. In both cases, Jesus takes the person away from the crowd. In both cases, Jesus not only lays his hands on them, but he also uses spit. Add to this that these are the only two miracles that are exclusive to Mark. The only two miracles that aren't also recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Why are they so similar and why is that significant? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I have some thoughts. I've had some ideas. 
the scriptures don't tell us. What I believe we see, though, is that these two miracles bracket this section on the unbelief of the disciples. And we see that Jesus is the one who gives hearing. He opens closed ears and he opens blind eyes. Something else that's worth noting in both of these miracles is the compassion of Jesus as he deals with these men with careful and gentle hands. He's not afraid to get close. Think back to the Pharisees who would not come close to someone whom they thought was cursed or they perceived as unclean. They wouldn't come near them. Jesus not only comes near, but in both cases we're told that he touches them. Do you want a picture of the gentleness of Christ and his compassion? Picture Jesus grabbing the hand of a blind man and walking him out of the city. Jesus constantly, we're told, he's trying to get away. He's trying to get away from the crowds. But Jesus takes his time with this man and he leads him out and he deals with him individually. He touches those who others would not touch. And we see the way he heals him with the touch and with his spit. Why does he touch him? Why does he lay hands on him? Why does he use his spit? Some people have suggested that, you know, back then it was really common for healers to use their spit, so this was commonly accepted. I don't care where you're from or when you lived. It's gross, isn't it? But Jesus does this to this man showing his care, and also showing us that healing comes from him. Comes from the mouth of Jesus, comes from the touch of Jesus. He goes through these steps. And then we see something else that we have never seen up to this point and never see again in relation to a miracle of Jesus. He asks the man about the effectiveness of the healing. Normally, Jesus makes pronouncements. He gives a command. He said to the leper, be clean, and he was. He says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he did. He said to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored. This is what we're used to. Jesus commands healing, and we have that word that Mark loves immediately. It's done. This is different. Jesus asked the man a question about the effectiveness of the healing. Jesus doesn't say, see, and he saw, but Jesus says, do you see anything? We've never heard a question like this from Jesus before. And I can't help but think back to the list of questions we just read. The questions that Jesus was asking his disciples. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And then in the next moment, he asks this man, do you see anything? And if that's unusual, consider what happens next. The man responds. He says, I looked up. I see people, but they look like trees walking. I don't know that there's any significance. I couldn't find anyone else who saw any significance in the fact that he mentions trees. Other than trees may be somewhat the same shape as people. 
But what we see in what he says is that he can see, but not fully. He can see, but not clearly. He has partial sight, but not full vision. It's like some of you who wear glasses. If you were to take off your glasses, can you see? Kind of. Maybe shapes, but not faces. This man says, I can see people, but I can't really distinguish too much about them. I think what we see is that the miracle is not complete. Which begs the question, why an incomplete or partial healing? Was Jesus not powerful enough to do it all at once? I think we could argue pretty easily against that one. Did something go wrong? Was there a malfunction in his healing power? I don't think anything went wrong. I certainly don't think it was a deficiency of the power of Jesus. Now, I believe Jesus could have healed him immediately and fully, but instead he heals in stages as a means of teaching his disciples, of illustrating for them and for us the difference between being blind and seeing partially and seeing fully. If you think about complete blindness, we can think again about the Pharisees. There was no sense in which they saw Jesus rightly. They did not believe he was Messiah. In fact, they opposed him to his face. They were blind. Jesus says that. The disciples were different. These are men who had followed Jesus. They obeyed him. They were even sent by him to proclaim him to others. They've been with Jesus and spoke on his behalf. But while they're accepting of Jesus to a point, Mark's made it clear that they are still hard-hearted. That's his word. I believe that Jesus uses this healing and this miracle at this time to show them there's such thing as partial sight. You need to have your eyes fully opened. I was glad to find that others agreed with this interpretation. R.C. Sproul among them. Let me just read what he wrote. I found it helpful and maybe you will as well. He said it's as if through this two-staged healing, Jesus was saying that the disciples had begun to see dimly. They were not in total darkness as the pagans were. Their eyes had been beheld many of the marvelous things of Christ. They had some understanding, but they had not yet seen clearly. If they had been asked to describe Jesus, they might have said in effect, I see a mighty oak walking around, but I do not really understand the full measure of who he is. They have partial sight, but they have not seen fully. And if you've been with us, that brings us back to the warning I've issued over the past couple of weeks. Something I've said over and over. It doesn't matter how familiar you are with Jesus or how much you know about him intellectually. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him. And as the one who stands here most weeks, who's been entrusted with sharing the truth with you, I never want to be unclear about this. That nearness to Jesus and familiarity with Jesus is not enough. To be forgiven of your sins and to be brought into a right relationship with God means repenting of your sins, turning to him and trusting him fully. It's not enough to come here every week. 
although I hope you will. It's not enough to know the songs and to sing them, although I'm glad you do. It's not enough to give your time or your money to the work of the ministry or to those in need. None of that matters if you haven't truly repented and believed. And this was the reason for Jesus' series of questions. Having eyes to see, have you not seen? Having ears to hear, have you not heard? He rebukes them for their lack of understanding, their failure to see, and then he gives them an illustration of what it looks like to be one with partial sight. It brings us back to the story. This man's been partially healed. I can't help but wonder what the span of time is here, and if he's thinking, is this really all I'm going to get? <laughs> I'm glad for what I can see, but it seems like there should be more. I wonder if you've ever had this thought. I'm glad to know Jesus, but it seems like there should be more. Maybe your eyes haven't been fully opened to behold the beauty of Christ. We see in verse 25 that Jesus completes the healing. He lays his hands on the man's eyes again. And he opened his eyes. I think this is speaking of the man. Yes, Jesus opened his eyes, but the man opens his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Mark uses three phrases to convey the completeness. Open eyes, restored sight, everything's clear. Mark leaves no doubt. It's not fuzzy, it's not foggy. He can see clearly. As we see this healing, I want to pause for a minute and take you back to where we were earlier. Consider the power of Jesus here that he can touch a man and give him sight. 2,000 years later, we've gotten better at improving vision. But it's not easy. It's a careful process. And it's not instant. Jesus heals in a moment and he can heal fully. We see the power of Christ. We also see his compassion that he would care enough for this man to heal him and to make him whole. Those are the big things. We come to see the miracles. We see the deity of Christ. We see the power of Christ. We see the compassion of Christ. But I think there's more here than that. I believe Jesus performed this miracle when he did, the way he did, in order to help his disciples recognize that they were themselves still partially blind. It's been recorded for us here to show us our need, our need to have eyes fully opened and the good news that Jesus is the one who can open blind eyes just to reiterate I don't think this miracle happened when it did by accident we've already talked about what happened before the miracle before the miracle Jesus rebukes the disciples for having eyes and not seeing next week we'll talk about what happened after the miracle let me give you a preview of things to come. Look at verse 27. Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
do you see anything? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about it. We've spent two chapters in Mark hearing about the unbelief of the disciples, about their hard-heartedness. And then we have a miracle where Jesus gives sight to the blind. And then the very next thing that happens, the next thing that Mark records, is Peter making this confession of faith. I see who you are. I know you. I don't think it's a coincidence that the only thing separating the rebuke of Jesus for his disciples' lack of understanding and the confession of Peter is a miracle where Jesus opens blind eyes. This is the work of Jesus to teach his disciples about their condition and the work of the Spirit through Mark to teach us. Yes, it's a sign of the power of Jesus and his compassion to heal a blind man, but it's also an illustration of the reality that we are all born blind and it's Jesus who can open our eyes and give us full sight. We again have this last verse that we've come to at the end of several miracles now. Verse 26. He sends them home saying, do not even enter the village. We've seen this command to silence over and over, haven't we? Don't tell anyone. We'll see it again next week. After Peter makes his confession of Jesus as Christ, he says, don't tell anyone. Over and over. Now the time will come after the cross and the resurrection when Jesus will tell his followers to tell everyone. But this is a unique time. He's revealing himself, but the work is not yet complete. So for this period of time, he issues these commands to silence. We've seen things repeated throughout the book. These commands of silence is one of them. Lots of things that are similar between all the miracles of Jesus. But there are also things that are unique. Things that are specific that I believe Jesus would have us to hear and to see. Here, it's our need for open eyes. To see Jesus clearly. With that in mind, let me end with just three things I want to share with you. So I've considered this text. One we've already considered. It's the warning that we all have a need to have our eyes open fully to who Jesus is. And maybe you're here and you're like the disciples. You're familiar with Jesus. You've been associated with Jesus. You've been around the church. But maybe you recognize that your sight is partial that you have not fully beheld the beauty of Christ. If that's you, know this. We are all born blind. Jesus can open blind eyes. Which means you can't do it on your own. So if you think, if I just read more or live better, maybe then I'll see Jesus more clearly. I'll understand him more fully. But the Bible says that Jesus is the one who does the work of opening blind eyes. So what we must do is come to repent of our sins and confess our need for him. Just like this blind man who came to Jesus was healed. If you aren't a believer in Christ or you want to know more what it means to experience the opening of your blind eyes, I would love to talk to you about this. 
We all have this need. Jesus is the one who gives sight. With that said, we also recognize that we as the church have been called to bring people to Jesus so that they can receive sight. Once again, we can't open blind eyes. But God tells us that he will use our witness as the means through which he does his work. I was going through and reading all the different passages in the New Testament this week that had to do with blind eyes or difficulty seeing. It's imagery that's everywhere, but the one that stuck out to me the most was 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We think, how could the Pharisees have seen him and not believed? We're told that they've been blinded, even with the glory of Christ in flesh. They couldn't see him. Paul says, for we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is a reminder of the situation of our blindness, of how we are all born veiled to who Jesus really is. But thankfully, Jesus came to open blind eyes. And so we see in 2 Corinthians 4, the next verse, verse 6. I love this one. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? It's Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? The same God who said, let light be, and it was. That same God with that same power has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who opens blind eyes. Paul says in verse 5, we proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus Lord. We go, church, and we proclaim him. And what can God do as we proclaim? What will he do? The same one who said, let light shine out of the darkness will shine into dark hearts and give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's our joy and our privilege to be the ones to herald the message that God uses to awaken hearts. We see the sovereignty of God. He's the one who gives sight. We're also reminded of our participation. We must be a people who bring people to Jesus. There's one more thing I want to mention before we leave this passage and before we finish this morning. And it's this. Not explicit from the text, but it's the reality that we should never tire of striving to see Jesus more clearly. There's a sense that we've seen that the disciples are slowly gaining more and more understanding of Christ. And let's be clear, Jesus saves us at a moment. He opens our eyes at a moment, but the scriptures are clear that there's this process of growing in holiness and in our ability to see the glory of Christ. As I considered the partial opening of eyes and the pro progress of the opening of this man's eyes, I was just reminded of our need to see him and to know him, to love him more each day. So we go through the gospel, we see the doubts and fears and the lack of trust of the disciples, and that's relatable to us, isn't it? 
We still stumble as we go. We're still learning to trust him. We're all growing in our ability to see him as truly beautiful and truly worthy of our worship. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't stop striving to see him. As long as we live in this life, we will never get to the point where we see him fully. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our hope is that day when we see our Savior's face and we see him fully. But even now, we should strive so we gather and we sing and we hear and we spend time in, our, in the word and in prayer and we obey and we speak of him all with the aim of knowing him more fully, of trusting him more completely. May we be a people who see Jesus and tell the world of his amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.